0: All right, am I on? Can you guys hear me? OK? No. Awesome. Thank you. Well, before we uh, read tonight's passage, and before we, we pray here, I want to quickly set the stage for where we find Jesus and the disciples tonight. Uh, our passage starts in Luke 9:57, but in Luke 9:51, we read that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem with his disciples, traveling, and his resolution is ultimately a resolution to die. He's going to Jerusalem, and while he's told his disciples in, in many ways, they still don't quite understand, but Jesus is going to fulfill his mission, and he's, he's going to die. But it says he set his face, his vision is forward, he's, he's walking forward, and he's not looking back. And that's where we find Jesus and his disciples at the end of the ninth chapter of Luke. So as is tradition, please stand for the public reading of God's word. Again, this is Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Let me pray for us tonight. Father God, you are you are so good. We are so blessed to be able to have your word, to meditate on it. In our culture, we often take it for granted, but I pray that you speak, speak to us through it tonight. I pray that you guard us from error, guard me from error in, in teaching your word. And I pray that you speak to our hearts. And, and Lord, that you... Show us what you you have for us tonight and, and learning what the cost of following you really is. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. I remember when I first read this passage detailing these three encounters, I was confused, to say the least. Is this condemning the burial of dead people? What exactly does it mean to put your hand to the plow and look back, and why does doing that make you unfit to serve in the kingdom of God? It it almost seems like Jesus is being rude and insensitive here at first glance and his replies to these seemingly reasonable requests. But upon close examination, I, I think these encounters have something extremely important to teach us about the cost of being a disciple, the cost of following Jesus. His replies to these disciples are not rude or insensitive, but they speak to their very hearts, which he knows as the Lord. These words also transcend just these these three people that he replies to, but they also apply to our own lives, to the lives of believers, and whether they know it or not, to the lives of unbelievers today as well. So when Jesus speaks, we need to listen, no matter how difficult his words may be, no matter how hard they might be to understand, or no matter how much we might not want to apply what he says to our lives. But when he speaks, we need to listen. And so the main point that I I want to draw out tonight and I want everyone to see tonight is that Jesus teaches us that he is worth following no matter the cost. Jesus is worth following no matter the cost. Let's jump in. Let's look at verse 57. And the first man What does this man say to Jesus? Yeah. I will follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you wherever you go. Anywhere you go, I will follow you. Right? He doesn't make any conditions. And it, he has to know at least something about Jesus's ministry, right? He knows this is not a work from home position, but that he We'll have to do some sort of traveling. He can't stay at home, but he has to go. I'll follow you. I'll go everywhere, Jesus. But based on Jesus' response, we know that this man had not truly counted the cost of discipleship. He not truly understood what this would mean for him to follow Jesus wherever he's going. Remember, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and there's great suffering and great anguish that's going to be bestowed upon him and upon his disciples and those who love him. And this man had a lot of self-confidence in the question that he asked, but he did not know of this suffering that lay ahead. And again, based on Jesus' response to him, we know that this was his heart, that he was maybe swept up in the moment, caught up in the emotions and the good feelings. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can relate to this. So, for example, have you ever attended a youth camp or an event and you got really fired up? We say that a lot, right? We're like, fired up for God. And I'm fired up. This worship has me super fired up. Or this sermon, oh man, it's just got me It's got me so on fire for God, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think for most of us, we can relate to maybe a time in our lives where that fire was there and then that Emotion started to dwindle over the course of the following days or weeks or months. Or maybe you've been in the midst of some really serious suffering in your life and you found yourself either consciously or unconsciously crying out to God, Hey, I did not ask for this. Right? Like, you didn't tell me that life with you is going to be this hard. I'm trying to follow you. Why is there so much suffering? Why why am I going through this pain? You didn't tell me that it was going to be this hard. But the truth is that God did tell us. He tells us right here. Look at Christ's response in verse 58. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is an amazing reply and probably my favorite verse in this passage for the, the, the depth ...that it carries with it. So don't miss this. Christ himself gave up so much... ...to fulfill his mission. And he's he's really revealing that to us... ...in this sentence. Even as he rebukes this man... ...who is potentially caught up in his emotions... ...and has not truly understood... ...what it means to follow Jesus. This term, the son of man... ...that Jesus likes to, to use... ...he most often uses it to refer to himself... ...it demonstrates his humanity. He is a man... But I'm a son of a man. But Jesus, much more so, is the son of man. This term is first seen in the book of Daniel. And in the context of Daniel is often referring to a very triumphant, powerful deity, which Christ is. But what's really interesting is that Christ often subverts that and, and balances that when he used it to refer to himself. It's in a very humble and lowly manner, as is here. He says the son of man... Barely has a place to rest his head. The the literal animals have holes in the ground and nests in the air. But I, the Son of Man, existed forever, eternal. In eternity past, existed with the, the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect communion and the amazing light and glory that that is. Yet in the incarnation, Christ made himself low. And from the very moment of his birth, he, he barely had a place to lay his head. Where was he born? In a, in a stable. They, there was no room at the inn, right? He was born next to filthy animals. Again, in the passages before this one, verses 51 through 56, Jesus, what did he just finish doing? If you read that, he just got rejected in Samaria. He was just rejected again, time and time again. He was not given a place to stay. The son of man has no place to rest his head when he says that he means literally he, oftentimes his ministry is marked by by homelessness. But even more than that, he is he's telling us that his ministry is not one of ease and luxury. His, his message is not it's all going to be easy. Everything is going to be OK. In your life, everything's going to go exactly how you want it. His message is I love you and I have a plan for you, and it's hard. And while the greatest joy you'll ever experience is found at Jesus' feet, worshiping Him, praising Him, being a Christ follower means being ready to give up anything that He asks us to. And that's based on His response, what we know this man was not ready to do. So while we don't know every detail about what suffering lays ahead, what persecution there will be in our lives. We do know that it will happen. But the, the great news is that Christ, being our example in everything, is our example in suffering. I won't have you do this too much, but turn really quickly to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2. I'll read this for us. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of god for to this you have been called because christ also suffered for you leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ is our example in everything. And that includes suffering. I think this idea, this passage, or the, 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 this first encounter is summed up well in the words of J.C. Ryle. He says this, if we are not ready to take part in the afflictions of Christ, then we must never expect to share his glory. If we're not ready to take part in his afflictions, if we're not ready to bear our cross and lay our own lives down and follow Christ as an example, even in really hard suffering, then we can't expect to call ourselves his children. Now, this doesn't mean that we should all just become homeless immediately, right? This doesn't mean that God gives us material possessions and property and graciously bestows these things upon many people in different situations to use for his glory but there are people that he calls to a ministry where they have to leave their home right missionaries there are people whom he calls to give up much and the point here is that we cannot allow the things of this world to get in the way of true discipleship that's seen here in the following verses as well If the first man was too quick to promise, then the second man, in verses 59 and and verse 60, was too slow to perform. The first man was too fast to pledge his allegiance. Yes, Christ, I'll follow you. Yeah, I'll do it. The second man agrees to follow Jesus, but first, what does he have to do? He's got to, yeah, he's got to bury his father. That's what he says. First, let me do this. Now, a helpful bit of cultural background is that this man's father was probably not dead. In Jewish culture, when, the, when a person died, they were buried within 24 hours of their death. And the family of that deceased person stayed with that body from the time of death until the time of burial. So if this man's father was already dead, he wouldn't have been with Jesus. That would have been breaking the law. So what this means is that this man's father was aging and ending or nearing the end of his life. But he probably still had a few months or, or maybe even a year or two left in his life. And so this man is saying, yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll follow you to Jerusalem. But, but first, let me, let me take care of this. Let me bury my father. His priorities aren't straight. If Jesus is the son of God, which he is, our first duty is towards him. And of course, honoring our parents is one of the Ten Commandments, right? We are, we are certainly called to honor our parents. But often it's not something bad inherently that gets in the way of our, our relationship with Christ. But it can be things that are good, and we just put them out of order. Good things can become an idol. It happens all the time. We can put them before Christ. Christ. So when Christ says, let the dead bury their own dead, he's not laying down a standard for all time that we should stop burying dead people. If that were the case, the bodies would have been piled up several layers deep, I imagine, by now. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is to this man, the kingdom of God is at stake and there's only one place that you can be right now. Follow me. I need you on the front lines of the kingdom. Remember the context. He's going to Jerusalem. He's saying, follow me. Come right now. Let's go. And this man says, okay, I'll do that, but I got this business I got to take care of first. No matter how noble that business might be, this is a clear command of Jesus. And again, I think we can relate to this man if we're honest with ourselves. Maybe if you're not yet a believer, maybe if you've not yet made that commitment You've considered it. You come here. Maybe you go to church, but you feel like there's something you need to do first. Maybe you need to uh, reconcile with someone. You you hurt someone really bad. Maybe you've done too many bad things and you're not quite sure if you'll be forgiven for them. Or maybe you want to sow your wild oats. Maybe you want to go to college and have fun and party. Because Christians can't have fun, right? So we, we want to go, go do that, and then I'll be a Christian after. Or maybe you've fallen victim to the mentality that I'll repent of this sin tomorrow. I, I, I'm going to sin, but I, Jesus will forgive me. Christ will forgive me. I'm going to repent of this tomorrow. Maybe you notice a pattern of sin in your life. Okay, I'm going to stop. Uh, Today's Wednesday, I'm going to stop on Sunday. Sunday's the day. I'm going to not do this anymore starting Sunday. Thursday through Saturday, we'll see. But Sunday, I'm definitely stopping on Sunday. I think that's the mentality of this man. And Jesus' response to him is, repent today. Turn and believe today, right now. Don't put it off for even one more hour. Follow him without delay. thing is, we're not promised tomorrow on earth, but we are promised by God himself that if we repent and believe, and we truly believe that Christ is the Son of God and that he died, and because of his death, we can have eternal life with him. He took our place, even though we don't deserve it. We admit that we're sinners, but we actually believe and, and put our faith and trust in Jesus, God promises that he will grant us eternal life with him. That we can be in eternity with him. So, yeah, we're not promised tomorrow on earth. But we are promised eternity in heaven with God if we turn from our sin. So I'm going to take a quick step back because we don't want to fall in that ditch, right, of of prioritizing things over Jesus. But... Sometimes the concern is that we're going to try to lean away from that ditch. But on the other side of the road, there's this other ditch over here. And that, it would be making service to God an excuse to not honor or care for our parents. Jesus warns against doing this in the Gospel of Mark. Mom, I would, I would love to do the dishes for you right now like you told me to, but God is really calling me to finish this game of Fortnite right now. I, I can feel it. He's telling me i got to do this. Right? That's silly. I know none of you would ever truly say that or believe that. I really, really hope that. But that's the other concern. Oftentimes, I would, I would reckon to guess that the majority of the time, service, honor, and care for our parents and our family is exactly the way that Jesus wants us to follow him, is the, exactly the way that we're called to follow him in our life. The point is not to let the duties we have been given <clears throat> take place over the reason that we would want to follow them in the first place. Don't let your your love for obedience or your love for doing the right thing or your love for doing good deeds and feeling good about yourself, don't let that take priority over, over Jesus, over relationship with him. If you do that, you're missing the forest for the trees. Right? It's like you're looking for this forest and you can't find it because there's all these trees in the way take a step back (laughs) you're in the forest Then the trees are a part of the forest but you're letting them get in the way of the bigger picture don't do that don't miss the forest for the trees let's quickly look at the third man the the third and final encounter at the end of of the ninth chapter of Luke so in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 8 only the first two men are, are mentioned but in this passage, the third man is mentioned as well. And he, like the second man, says, I want to follow you, Jesus. But what's he have to do first? What's he have to do? Say goodbye. Say goodbye. What more reasonable request could there be? Hey, I got to go tell my family that I didn't fall in the ocean and drown. I didn't get kidnapped. He simply wants to... Tell his friends and family where he's going. That's all he's asking for. That's what it seems like. And Jesus says, no. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. When a farmer plows a field, if they continue to look back, their lines become all crisscrossed and zigzagged. That's what Jesus is referencing here. This is what this means. This farmer that puts his his hand to the plow and looks back, his line goes off that way, and then he overcorrects that way, and he's got corn coming up where he thinks there's beans. There's a bad harvest, right? Think about driving if you want a more modern example. I know we have a lot of people that are learning to drive, a lot of people that can drive and really shouldn't probably be driving. I don't like driving in Mackinac very much. No offense to you guys, just a little scary. I guess every town has high school drivers, but I don't know. I know, I know you well enough. It scares me. But when you're driving and you're looking back behind you, of course, one, you can't see what's in front of you. But even if you start to look off to the side, what subconsciously happens when you start to look away? You start to veer. You turn where you're looking. And that's what Jesus says this man is doing, to, to put your hand to the plow and look back is proverbially or metaphorically to not have our vision forward. It's to be looking back at the way things used to be and letting those distract you. Our vision must be straight. J.C. Ryer wisely said that those who look back want to go back. If you look back, you want to go back. And Jesus is telling us that the future is where our eyes ought to be. The mission that he has given us is to go forward. What's he say to the second man? Go forth and proclaim the gospel. And so it was for this man that if if this guy had gone back home, he would have been tempted to stay there. He would have been putting his hand to the plow and looking back. His line would not have been straight. This wouldn't be the case for necessarily every person, but Jesus knows this man's heart. It's not, again, saying that this is a bad thing to tell your family where you're going. But Jesus knew that for this man, this would have tempted him to live in the past and keep looking backwards at the way things used to be before he followed him. It was better for this man to stay and follow Jesus right away. And so it is for the kingdom of God, all those who would press on, all those who had professed to have faith in Jesus, we need to have our vision forward. We need to have an eternal mindset. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and his kingdom and his future. Before we dismiss to small groups, some closing, closing thoughts are that, uh, you know, neither Luke nor Matthew tell us what happened to these three men, what became of them. I'm curious. I'd like to know. I have some ideas, but it doesn't tell us. The truth is that we don't know, so I'll keep those to myself. Did they ever decide to follow Jesus? Was the first man willing to become homeless for the sake of the gospel? Did the second and third men start following Jesus right away? Or did they allow the duties and obligations of life and the temptations of the past to cloud their vision and steer them off course? Maybe we we aren't told what happened to them because Jesus' main concern was to help us with the ending of our own story, our own journey with, with Christ. This would be recorded for all future believers to read and apply to our lives. And while it can be difficult to fully understand, I think we owe it to him. These are his words. We need to listen. Again, I think we can see ourselves in these people. We're not to look down on them. I think for many of us, we may be able to relate maybe more closely to one than the others. So that's just a question for yourself. Which person do you see in yourself? Which, which Which of these three would you relate most closely to? Have you really counted the cost of discipleship? Have you really understood that there's serious suffering ahead? Do you ever struggle to rightly order your life with Jesus as the center, everything else ordered around him? Do you ever look back longingly at the past and the way things used to be before you trusted in him? Now we're, we're faced with how are we going to respond, right? And my plea to you tonight is to look to Jesus Look at his promises. He tells us, for example, in John chapter 6, that all who the Father gives to him, he will close in his hands, he will protect us, and he will raise us up on the last day. He won't lose any of us, despite our imperfections, despite our sin, despite our failures. The truth is that if you have repented and believed in Christ, he promises to raise us up in glory with him. Let that be where your vision is fixed when you put your own hand to the plow. Look to Jesus and his promises and don't look back. Keep going forward. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would show us continually how worthy you are and that even though let we follow you at It comes at a cost to us. It's not a cost that you weren't willing to pay yourself. Lord, I thank you for your sacrifice for us. I pray for each and every student here tonight. You would be with them, be in their hearts and their minds, occupy their thoughts. Give us all the grace and the power to move forward without looking back, without prioritizing other things over you with a real understanding of what discipleship looks like, continue to grow us and sanctify us to look more like you. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.